With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Not for the first time on this show, we're joined by Pixar Royalty, which is, frankly, a joy. Following my chat about Coco with Lee Unquich and Darla Anderson back in episode 75, we're delighted to welcome writer, director, animator, voice actor and double Oscar winner Brad Bird, who's just served up another masterclass in movie making with The Incredibles 2. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, a podcast about the sounds of the silver screen. If you're new to us, we speak to legends from the world of film and television about the music in their work every single week, weaving examples of the tunes we discuss throughout the conversation. Like Coco, Incredibles 2 is scored by Michael Giacchino, who also worked with Brad on the first film. And it's there that we begin with Michael's opening cue from The Incredibles, The Glory Days. Bird, welcome to Soundtrack, and I don't know if anyone's told you what our chat is primarily going to be about, but not predominantly, um, is music. Oh, cool. And music and film, and how Yay. important it is, and the role that it has for you both personally and professionally, being a filmmaker, but also a film fan, if yes. that's all right. Let's start with Incredibles 2, which I've had the absolute joy of seeing. I've slightly guiltily having to tell my five-year-old and my ten-year-old that I've seen it without them, but the joy that I get to go and see it again with them. It's yes. great. I wanted to ask, with, with regards to the music in Incredibles 2, obviously you have this beautiful and incredible framework that Michael did on the first film. Right, and was his first score. Was it way. his very first? Yeah, for movies, for mov yeah. Yeah, wow. Why him? Well, when I was looking for composers, they send in CDs that you okay. get. If, if they hear that the job is open, an avalanche of uh, CDs come in. And um, of all the CDs that came in, Michael's had the most um, 
versatile uh, work. I mean, yeah. the style of music that he was able to compose varied widely from the you know subject material. He could do World War One music, and it sounded perfect. He could do jazz; it sounded cool. He he could do, emulate a, a movie made in the '40s. And um, he just had amazing versatility, and uh, that was the thing that really got my attention. And he knew when I was first talking to him about the kind of music that I wanted, which is more akin to 60s spy films than yeah. it is superhero films. Yeah. He clicked into it immediately. You know, I said John Barry and, and Hoyt Curtin, who did uh, the uh, music for Johnny Quest, which was a show that I loved as a kid. Mission Impossible and, and uh, Man from Uncle and, and all of those kind of spy movies from the, the 60s. I wanted a big brassy sound and that's how I wanted the superhero movie that we were doing to sound. And he clicked into it immediately and was able to go there um, fantastically and, and uh, he's been my go-to guy ever since. I, I love working with Michael. On that CVCD that he sent you of his music, was it just music? Did he in any way, you know, introduce music. and talk about no. things, or just the music? Let no, um, he had worked with one of the main artists that was on Incredibles, named Teddy Newton, and so Teddy had kind of said, you know, there's this guy named Michael. Uh, you should really check him out, you know. So I also had that flag. Is that it stuck out a little bit because Teddy had, had told me about him. But I wasn't predisposed to use him just because Teddy had used him. But it was like a little, you know, highlighter on, yeah. on his name. Uh, but then when I listened to the work, which he had done for video games and for television, it really stuck out to me. His versatility is just incredible. It, it, it is. It really is. And, and in particular, I think as well, the way that he's 
the work that he's done in, in animation as well is, is he doesn't approach music in animation like it's for an animated film. He approaches it like it's a feature film, which right. is how it should be. Yes. And you think of the complexities of something like um, Inside Out in particular. I just, sure. It was pretty spectacular. And the opening section of Up uh, was oh. an amazingly emotional moment that was really music dependent in a lot of ways. Well, that's something that I see, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but that I see you using music with and you appreciate the power of music and its storytelling and sure. how music can say so much more than words can sometimes and express emotion uh, so much more in in the way that, that words can't. And I think in our giant, we'll talk about that later in particular, there's so much that the music does. Right, that was Michael Kamen. Yeah, yeah, for the story. But I yes. think you, I get this, uh, for me as a film fan, I get from you as a filmmaker, the importance that music plays for you in telling the well, story. Well, very much. And it's impossible for me to, uh, when I think of my favorite movies, the movies that I could see at any time and stop whatever I'm doing and, and get absorbent, absorbed in them, even though I've seen them a million times, the music is inextricable from, it's bound into the DNA of those movies. Mm. I can't imagine The Godfather without Nina Rota's music. can't imagine Close Encounters or Star Wars or Jaws without John Williams. Jerry Goldsmith and Planet of the Apes or Patton and Poltergeist and so many others. It goes right down the, the line and I cannot imagine a James Bond movie without John Barry's music. It's as much the movie as any other part of it.
so it's a very strange thing, movie music, because it comes very late in the process. And it is absolutely vital to the success of the movie. And it's very nervous because there's this awful tearing down of your original vision that happens when you have to make it into a movie because when it's just an idea, it can be everything you've ever liked about <laughs> movies and it's gonna cure cancer and it's gonna make the world happy and a better place. And gradually as you start defining what it is, you also just start defining what it isn't. Mm -hmm. And the movie gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then there's a point where you just go, wow, there's nothing left. And that's about at the point where other people get intimately involved and it starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's now narrowed down what it is about, but the quality of what it's about and the depth of it increases and keeps getting more spectacular and more spectacular. And it's kind of this weird Phoenix life like uh, collapse and rebirth that happens when you're making it. And one of the last things to happen is music. And it's almost like you've got this very handsome thing that, that is now, you know, got its own walk and it dresses well and it's now ready for the world. It was horrible not too long ago. <laughs> and you want to hide it in a dungeon somewhere where no one will ever see it to this very assured, confident individual, ready for the world. And then it's like you are taking him into an operation room, you're sedating him and cutting it open. And now it's totally up to the music guy to decide whether it lives or dies. And you're like, oh, don't wound my film. It's so, it has so much promise now. It's, it's actually starting to know who it is. And, and it's like, don't worry, you know, it's gonna be better than before, but you could kill it. Yes, I could, but I'm not going to. You're going to love it. And, and that's what music is. And, and, you know, a bad score can absolutely kill a movie. And a good, uh, a good score can make it and just make it so that you can't imagine it any other way. And, and that's what um, Michael's scores are like. One of the parts of the process that I enjoy the most are sitting there and watching Michael make it... Um, fabulous. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't require much from me. Mainly I sit there and applaud and occasionally give him little treats. I toss him into his mouth. <laughs> like your pet he, dog. <laughs> yes, but they're high-end treats. Don't worry. They're much better than what a dog gets. You know, It's like caviar and things like that. You just toss them Spoiling at him. Spoiling him. Yeah. <laughs> conversations that you had though in terms of you know you have this wonderful framework that was was incredible the first Incredibles film and, and you're going on to Incredibles 2 mm -hmm. and you want to use things that are already existing to a point but you also 
Oh, you it's mean themes from the first movie? Yeah, and how much you use. Yeah, well, Michael has very strong opinions about this, and it's it's uh, interesting to get into talks with him because he's he's primarily a filmmaker who specializes in music um, because he thinks about the whole film. He doesn't only think about the music. He thinks mm. about the whole film and how music interfaces with it. He's really a storyteller, another storyteller on the project. And he is also a fan of movie music. And what he admires about someone like John Williams doing Empire Strikes Back, that he had some very famous and well-known uh, light motives from the first movie. But he didn't lean on them for the second movie. He came up with some of his greatest themes, like the Imperial March, for the second movie. So he didn't lazily sit there and replay. Uh, he used it occasionally if he wanted to touch on something that you knew from the first movie and play emotionally with it. But he didn't need it. He, he had other things that he could play with. And Michael does that for this movie. He touches on The Incredibles themes at, at the right moment, but he has a lot of new music in this that plays with um, the, the unique things to this story. So he's of that ilk mm. to me. But you know what I find interesting is that when I was listening, you know, you mentioned Iron Giant, you know, it, that was my first feature film that I had done. And it went, I went through the same process where we had a certain amount of money that we could spend and you had to find out who, who could handle the job best with the amount of money that we had. And we got a lot of different, uh, uh, some, you know, very experienced uh, people in. And then we had some up-and-comers uh, who were new composers who were trying to get their way to the more A projects. And you could tell uh, when the filmmaking was bad because the music was unfocused, which was funny. And I remember there was one film, I won't say who the actors are, but two well-known good actors are having a fight scene. I'm looking at this sample music, and on the reel was a fight scene between these two very good actors that I will not name. <laughs> For instance, uh, I don't want to expose the composer. Well, actually, the composer is working hard. I don't want to badmouth the director. <laughs> uh, it's really, that's the problem. And the, the scene was so um, not well shot, and there was nothing emphasized in the way it was staged or, or shot. 
and the composer is working hard to find something musically to hang on to, and the music's kind of going, and you're going, geez, do something. But it's because the action on the screen is literally that. There's no emphasis, there are no accents, there's no moment of a pause or a change in tone. Mm -hmm. And at one point, one of the characters has to leap across a little chasm. And at that moment, the, the, the music guy leaps on that like a starving dog on a, on a piece of meat. He's going, and you know, then it's back to, because there's nothing happening visually. And a lot of my favorite composers like John Williams, their best scores are always for well-directed films. And their weakest scores are always for poorly directed films. Mm -hmm. And they are musically nice. They're very professional. You know, he's a brilliant composer. But the structure of a good film uh, prompts good musical structure. Yeah. And bad structure when you have to hang music to it, there are very few instances where really bad movies have had great scores. There are some, but they're few and far between. And if you notice that all of the John Williams scores that we remember best are really great movies that he's attaching and supporting, uh, attaching to and supporting. So uh, that to me is interesting. I think that great music is prompted by really good filmmaking. There's some wonderful themes narratively in Incredibles 2. The father being the, the predominant parent looking after the kids storyline. Right. I, I love that. My, my husband and I, you know, we both work and, you know, we're a team. Right. Uh, and that's what's so great about your films is the reality that you have obviously either experienced yourself, you've witnessed and you put on screen. Because even though these are animated characters, you know, superheroes, there's so much truth and beauty and life in those characters. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I was inspired by my own families, <laughs> um, the one that I grew up in with my sisters and my parents, and then the one that I now have with my wife and sons. And um, between those two, there's an ocean of stuff to draw on. And, you know, our dinners in both of the families that I've been with are kind of like those dinners where people speak up and, and sometimes people argue. But Did it's, you wash your hands? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's <laughs> older true. sister's superiority, which I've had to cope with. My five-year-old, just from the trailer, has that scene memorized and just recites it all day long. Really? It, yeah, it's just, it's those little things, though, that, that kind of, the, the connections that yeah, kids yeah. at different ages make with things. Right. So good. Well, and he's totally, he does it, <laughs> but it's grudgingly, you know. I know that very well as, as the little brother to three sisters. Did you wash your hands with soap? Did you dry them? Is this all vegetables? Who wanted all vegetables? I did. With Michael and, and, and this wonderful um, score for, for Incredibles 2, when did he come into the process? At what point is well, he Well, I make sure and... I let him know what I want to do way in advance so he can't book any other work. <laughs> you know, I He's mean, he'll be he quite busy. He books a lot around it, but I always make sure, you know, I, I I say reserve some time for me 
two years from now because we're going in, you know. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, you know, uh, he's so good on every film and he changes a, a lot. It's kind of like uh, Scorsese wanting to work with De Niro, you know. He can do so many different kind of parts that I can't think of a part that, that Michael can't play. And music mm. is really kind of an acting performance in, in a way, too. So I always make sure I get in there on his book, you know, which is, um, you know, fills up quickly these days. Yeah, talking about those relationships being being kind of really perfect. The the, the voice casting, you know, again is just there's a lot of familiar voices in there. There's some new ones. Um, Kathleen Keener as Evelyn, I think, is just oh, inspired she's great. piece of casting. It's well, I love her work. Yeah, she's same. so good. I mean, she, you know, you can take any film, but when you see something like Capote where she's playing. Uh, Harper Lee, uh, it's just, um, you know, you have to be really good to hang in the ring, the ring with Philip Seymour Hoffman, and she absolutely holds her own, and you believe that relationship. Well, I, it was just a wonderful, she was my first choice for that role, and I was delighted when she said yes. And Isabella Rossellini. Yeah. 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 Nice touch. There you go. <laughs> Come but, on, there's what, movie royalty. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But what I, what you know, from following you on social media and seeing things, is you see your cast together in sessions sometimes, and that seems quite unique. Well, it well. gives the impression that there we recorded them together, <laughs> but that doesn't happen very often. Mm. Um, it's happened a couple of times where we've been able to mesh the schedules. But I think part of the reasons that actors like to do animation, besides the fact that it's unusual and, and kind of is a different muscle in the, uh, that they develop. But it's also that we can accommodate their schedules really easily. You don't have to ha hit marks or remember lines. We have them in front of you. And it's sort of uh, pure acting, but it's mainly about what you can hear in the voice because I try to look away from the actors when we're recording because they're seductive to look at because they do wonderful things with their faces. But I look away because I, I don't want to be seduced by anything they're doing physically. I just want to hear the voice mm -hmm. and I'm looking for something that's going to inspire an animator because what it takes an actor, you know, five seconds to say it will take an animator sometimes a month to animate. And they're going to hear this line of dialogue, you know, a thousand times and try to be inspired and dig deep and, and come up with a physical performance that is as interesting as what they're doing on the soundtrack. So it's very important to have really good voices in these films. And sometimes the voices are really well-known, established actors like Holly Hunter, and sometimes they are somebody that's you know working in the pod next to me at Pixar, who just happens to sound perfect for that character. You know, the guy that did uh, Linguini and Ratatouille was our art director on the first Incredibles, and he just uh, had this amazing. He, he he had taken acting, he knew how to do acting, but uh, he was perfect for that character. So I think that you want to get something that inspires animators, because that goes a long way. Did you take much persuasion to do Edna when you were kind of told that you're, you know, when you said, I think you sent the tape to Lily Tomlin, didn't you? To say you wanted her to do the role. And she said, you've already got the voice there. Well, Is that the it, it was a little more complicated than that. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought I was going to get a chance to work with Lily and very excited about that. And she, when I was explaining the character, I kind of was doing the voice as part of the explanation of who she was. And she kept asking me to do it again. 
And then she said, look, why don't you just read the whole part into this tape recorder? And I'll go in the other room. We were at her offices. So I sat down, and I'm doing Edna and John, the producer, John Walker, who also produced Incredibles 2, was reading the other parts. And we're looking at each other like, what the hell are we doing here, you know? <laughs> and I left. She was very pleasant. She came back in about a half hour later said, you know, you got it? Oh, great. So just leave that with me, and I'm going to, you know, just kind of see what, what happens. And she was very pleasant, said, well, I really enjoy this role. This is really a, a, a nice part. But, you know, I keep trying to get it the way you're doing it, and I kind of think you should do it. <laughs> and I, I went, well, wouldn't it be better to have a professional? <laughs> and she said, you know, no, I think you've got something there. And about at the same time, we had a screening where with Scratch Voices, which is us, and I did more than one character. I did Bob, I did Syndrome, and I did E. And we came out of that screening, and um, both John Lasseter and Andrew Stanton said, you know, you should do The Voice. So I was kind of the last one in. Maybe Walker was even more, you know, yeah, you shouldn't do The Voice uh, than I was. But, uh, you know, yeah, it kind of happened by accident. This is a horrible suit, darling. Oh, you can't be seen in this. I won't allow it. Years ago, maybe, but now... Oh, what do you mean? You designed it. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. You need a new suit. Don't much is certain. A new suit? Oh, where the heck am I going to get a new you suit? You can't! It's impossible! I'm far too busy, so ask me now before I again become sane. Wait, you want to make me a suit? No, you push too hard, darling. But I accept. It will be bold, dramatic, yeah. heroic. Yeah, something classic, like... Uh, guy. Oh, he had a great look. Oh, the cape and the boots. No capes. Can I take you back a little bit? Because I had a similar experience than you did where I was... I went to Disney World when I was nine years old, mm -hmm. and I went on a behind-the-scenes tour. In Florida, yeah. Yeah, and I was just transported, to be honest, and it oh, was cool. just a world that, you know, I loved at that age for a certain reason, but kind of throughout my life, it's been wonderful to delve into it more and learn more about it from talking to people like yourselves. And you did a studio or some kind of tour when you were young, didn't you? And I had a really quite... Well, it wasn't a tour like that other people went on. Yeah. What happened was, when I started getting really interested in animation, like actually making animated films. There was a friend of my parents who went to school with the composer for the Disney films, and his name was George Bruns, and he composed the music for Jungle Book and wrote the music for Cruella de Vil. And so he, in that late 50s, early 60s period, he did the music for Disney animation. They knew, went to school together, and they said, well, he's coming up to hang out with us a little bit on the beach. Do you want to meet him? And I said, absolutely. And so I met him, and I absolutely barraged him with questions about Disney and all, you know, about Frank Thomas and 
Milk Call and Ollie Johnson and all these guys. And what was it like to do, you know, Tchaikovsky music for uh, Sleeping Beauty and, uh, you know, 101 Dalmatians ever had, you know, so I'm just like getting all over him. And and he was really patient and wonderful. He's kind of a big bear of a guy. And and he said, you know, look, you know, do you ever get down to Los Angeles? And I'm like, I can get down to Los Angeles, you know, because I, 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 you know, so, and he said, um, well, come down and, you know, I'll give you a tour of the studio and you can meet wow. the animators and stuff. So if you're ever down there and I'm like looking at my parents, am I down there soon? You know, and they kind of, okay, you know, they arranged for me to stay with friends we had down there. And George took me through the studio at age 11 and I met all the animators and I remember meeting Frank and Ollie and uh, he took me through the whole department and I went to every part of the process. I saw the story process, I saw the place where they uh, came up with all the colors for paints which were hand mixed back then and and the best in the world easily. And the Xerox uh, uh, camera which took up two rooms and and just this great and it was for me I was just on cloud nine because I had read about Disney animation at that point because my parents got me a book that I, I read so many times the pages almost got all the life sucked out of them because they had been looked at too many times. And I remember George saying to them, oh, this is Brad, you know, he's just started his uh, first animation animated film, you know. And they gave me this very patient kind of smile that I remembered distinctly and it could only be described as them thinking, yeah, kid, you're going to be remain interested for maybe two weeks more and I'll never see you again. Very nice to meet you and I'll never see you again because you're, this is going to be too tedious for you. And they were shocked when I showed up three years later with a 15-minute film. And they were just getting to be uh, realized that they had no one trained to replace them because uh, the animation business kind of came uh, of age in the 30s and it never expanded beyond the level in terms of the number of jobs. So it was kind of closed. I mean, they had all the jobs they needed were handled by the old guys who were masters, but there were no new people learning their skills. So it was really a candle that was on its way to going out when we showed up. And there was a whole bunch of us that showed up at CalArts at just the right time and got the baton passed through those guys. So all the amazing things they learned and and ways to think about scenes they conveyed to us. And I can't say uh, how astonished I am that I had a chance to be mentored by them because they meant everything to me and do mean everything to me to this day. I rewatched The Iron Giant um, the other day with my with my kids. It's a gorgeous film. Oh, and, thanks. And, and the animation and the artwork in particular are beautiful. Well, thanks. And it feels like it's a real love story to animation in a way. Yeah, I, I guess in a way I didn't know at the time whether I'd ever get a chance to make another one. It had taken me far longer than I thought it would to get the opportunity to direct an animated film. And I thought there was a feeling at Warner Brothers at that particular moment they'd been burned in their animation experiences and they were heading for the exits right when I arrived. Mm-hmm. So there was this feeling like, you know, well, if they don't turn off the lights, 
we could probably make a film before they know that they haven't turned off the electricity. And, you know, there was a feeling that we, I mean, they were shutting down the animation division as we were making the film. So it was kind of like getting booked in the uh, bottom cheapest part of the Titanic and then suddenly being allowed to run around in first class. You know, after it hits the iceberg, you know, we're all going to be dead and on the bottom of the ocean in a few hours. But hey, look, free cigars and brandy, you know. Um, top deck. Yeah, top deck. So, uh, you know, uh, it was really a feeling of this may be the only one that I get to make. So we threw all of our best uh, into it, you know, in hopes that it would work out. And it didn't get a a good reception. At the, I got a good critical reception and anyone that saw it seemed to like it, but uh, no one came to see it on its first release. So it's really kind of, time has been good to it though. I think people are discovering it more and more now. And that score, just quickly before we finish, that Michael came in and you mentioned did as Wonderful well. Wonderful score. Who's, you know, he's, you know, talk about someone with the diversity of, of, yes. of you know, he's absolutely Rita Sue of that and Bob ilk. too, to Die Hard and kind well, of everything and in Baron between. Well, and Baron Munchausen yeah. and all kinds of films. Mona Lisa and Highlander yeah. and all those great Very scores. Very talented guy. But great guy too. Really great guy. Within this film, though, I feel that the score is important. There's a couple of needle drop in the diner that you can kind of yeah, see Jerry Lee Lewis or something going on there in the back. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Uh, in the diner yeah. of Iron Giant? Yeah. Oh, no, we did hit the, the 50s. Yeah. Uh, you know, but Michael knew we were doing that, and he was cool <laughs> yeah. with that. Um, you, we definitely did. I mean, we had a searching, you know, yeah. um, that we kind of choreographed Kent Mansley looking for Giant's clues to that <laughs> while he's having a, a real trouble with some laxative that he's trying to digest. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, no, we knew that we wanted to set it very firmly in the in the late 50s, and that was part of that landscape. Gonna find her.
kind of jazz sleuthness that's kind of weaved through, but also not using music, knowing when to not have music. Right. Well, both Michaels that I've worked with are aware of when sound can become music itself, and they stand back, and they, they don't always assume that music is the best choice, which to me means that their first love is storytelling. And uh, so those are the kind of composers I like to work with, and, and I've done well by the Michaels of the world. <laughs> um, thank you for your time. I hope we get to do this again, because we haven't even touched on Mission Impossible, Tomorrowland, The Simpsons, all that stuff. So, Brad, really appreciate it. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Music. We love it. <laughs> <laughs>